This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 595 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show, Mike Dugan. Now, Mike has an incredible story from entering the fire service as a volunteer, then law enforcement, then joining FDNY, as well as being present at both World Trade Center attacks. So we discuss a host of topics from his journey through the first responder professions, mental health, innovation and equipment, strength and conditioning, and so much more. Now, before we get to this amazing conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating elevates this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of almost 600 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Mike Dugan. Enjoy. Mike, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Behind the Shield podcast today. Not a problem at all. Not a problem at all. I'm looking forward to a great discussion. 
Absolutely. So I've got to listen to a little bit of your show you do with Mike Galliano, who's connected us. So I want to say thank you to him. I listen to you on Jim Moss's podcast as well. So yeah, I'm very, very excited to uh, see where this goes. So where on planet Earth are we finding you today? If actually you could even tell me which part of the house. <laughs> I am in the basement in East Northport, New York. Uh, I am uh, sitting in my basement, kind of uh, hiding behind. Uh, there's an American flag behind me because I am in a unfinished basement and it's urban camouflage, which we become very good at with the uh, seeing it in the uh, cities and everything else. So uh, because of during the pandemic, my wife was working from home and for a while and my daughter was getting her master's from home. So uh, I'm down in the basement, but uh, already went for a walk on the beach this morning. So it was beautiful, a little breezy, but it was beautiful. Fantastic. Yeah, it's gorgeous here in Florida today, too. I just went out with my dogs a little while ago. So I would love to start at the very beginning. So tell me, tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Okay. Um, I was born in uh, Glen Cove City Hospital, New York. We lived in Plainview for the first two years of my life. I was number two. Um, I have five brothers and sisters. There are six of us. My mom was pregnant uh, nine times in 11 years. Uh, my dad used to say they were uh, Irish Catholic. It was Vatican roulette, bingo and prayers. <laughs> he used to joke if they washed their underwear together, she got pregnant. Um, so I am still very close with all of my siblings and, um, they're all over the country, but we have some great family traditions that I love to pass on because it's so fun to me. Um, my brothers and sisters, anyone in the family turns 60, the other five have to show up to you for a meal. And we all have to get together for your 60th birthday, wherever it is. And then when somebody turns 70 and nobody's turned 70 yet, my elder sister is turning 70 uh, next year. Um, and uh, we are going to, she can pick anywhere she wants to go in the continental United States. And the other ones have to show up to her to have her, meet her for a meal. And I think it's just a great tradition. So I am one of six. Uh, my mom and dad, my dad was a World War II bomber pilot. Uh, flew 65 missions in B-26s over hostile territory. So um, he came back home and he went to work for the American Tobacco Company, which is LSMFT. Lucky strike means fine tobacco. And uh, my old man worked for the American Tobacco Company. And as a kid, we were living the high life. We belonged to a country club. We did a lot of stuff. And then in 1969, the government got involved and took cigarette advertisement off TV. And um, my father had to take a half cut pay with a wife and six kids and my grandmother living with us because my grandfather had died. And um, it was became a little interesting. But uh, at that time, I was a young kid. I was 13 years old. And my old man said, you know, listen. Uh, don't come to me for money because I'm not going to have the stuff you need. I can hardly afford all the stuff we have right now. So go out and get a job. And I got my first job at 12. I was delivering papers at 12. At 13, I got a job at a butcher shop, uh, Hildebrand's Meat Market. And I used to walk from my junior high school, a um, mile and a quarter to the to Main Street and uh, work in a butcher shop, uh, old school butcher, sawdust on the floor, the whole nine yards. And then um, 
one day um, they just went out of business. Um, the person who was in charge uh, wasn't a good businessman. And I ended up working in a uh, supermarket as a deli clerk. And then I just worked my entire life. I've worked my whole life. And um, it's I like working. I'm finally retiring uh, the end of this month. I'm going to give up uh, my teaching in the city. I've retired from the city of New York for 10 years, but I used to teach um, for fire safety directors, building owners, and everything else in some really neat places in New York City, but I don't want to schedule anymore. So I'm going to be retiring, and I like to say my wife is also retiring. She works for a local county out here on Long Island, and we're both going to retire on April Fool's Day. Well, congratulations, firstly. Thank you. So going all the way back to your dad, um, it's amazing how many people either had, you know, parents, grandparents, depending on, on their age, that were World War II era. And sadly, that's a voice that we've lost. I had just had a, a gentleman a few weeks ago as a Marine on Iwo Jima, who's actually um, wounded in that, that assault. Um, but we don't get to hear it. And also another thing that seems to come up over and over again is we, we have this kind of impression that they all came home, there were ticker tape parades, everyone was great, then they rolled their sleeves up, went to work, and mentally they were all fine. As you start unraveling and peeling back the onion, you realize, well, that wasn't the case at all, that a lot of them kind of pushed it down and, and it did haunt them. So did your did your dad ever talk about the war and, and did you ever see any kind of ripple effects that you now would have identified in the fire service as well? Absolutely. Um, my dad was a heavy drinker. He was a partier. Uh, he was a um, he was a heavy smoker. He smoked for because uh, he had to smoke to have his job, and you know he had to test cigarettes. How far the world has changed. He used to come home with brands of cigarettes, and my old man had a will of steel. And um, the thing is that um, you know he used to he and i had uh fights my younger brother talks about he and i having battles over haircuts and uh things like that because you know uh all of the real men in his world bart Starr, jerry kramer they all had crew cuts and the beatles were around and i wanted to grow my hair a little bit and he was like there's no way i mean we went through the front door one time my mother was like you're gonna give your father a heart attack don't do this. Don't, and I'm like, but he's not running. And it was a lot of it was uh, the whole thing. My younger brother, who is um, an Annapolis graduate, said that I kind of plowed the field for him and my two younger brothers and that I took all the beatings. And my sisters never even knew. I mean, they still say to this day that, you know, I remember him banging you around once in a while, but I never knew how bad it was. My brothers knew how bad it was. And it just was what it was. I mean, I loved my dad dearly and I loved him to death, but he came back with some issues and I got to go down in Florida. There was a place outside of Orlando called the History of Flight. I don't think it's there anymore, but it was an airplane museum. And I went down there. I got a lot of my father's stuff. I even have, this is his yearbook from 1942 to bomber pilot school wow. and all, all of the names in there. And I have actual World War II battle damage photos from my old man, from the missions they were on. And I got to go into a B-26 and I knew when my, why my father was claustrophobic because the co-pilot had to get out while they were going through flak 
so that the, the bombardier, the navigator, could get into the nose cone of the plane to, to use the bomb site. So they were flying with one person. That person got hit. The plane crashed. You know, so um, what I think really changed it for my dad and I was when I went on the New York City fire department, because that opened up a lot of things. And then after World War, uh, after, sorry, after the World Trade Center, the second bombing, I was at both bombings. But after the second bombing, uh, my dad said to my younger brother, who was the Annapolis graduate and a, a veteran of the Navy, he said, this is your brother's combat. This is your older brother's combat. This is his war. And, you know, being at ground zero and everything else, and I know we'll get into that a little later, but um, so that opened up a lot. And we talked a lot more in the later end of his life about the things that he went through. And, you know, some of them are funny. Some of them are horrific. Uh, I know at one point they um, were flying back from a mission where they couldn't drop bombs on the targets and they saw an enemy troop train in uh, Italy and they bombed it. And it turned out to have POWs on it. And they had no idea. And um, they probably killed Americans. And I mean, I can't imagine that not haunting anybody. See, and this is why these conversations are so important. Like all of these stories, all these perceptions have been lost. And this is definitely a resounding common denominator that's come out of a lot of these interviews is it was when someone was either in law enforcement, fire, or they themselves enlisted in the military that that generation felt they could talk. And I think that's a, a very powerful parallel for counseling. Like, you know, we get so many horror stories of our men and women going to see someone who is the absolute wrong fit that makes it worse. So these, you know, cult, what they call culturally competent counselors or clinicians, these men and women that have either done the ride-alongs or they were former, you know, first responders or military, that's so, so important for us to be able to open up to someone who actually understands what we've seen and done. Absolutely. And I tell all of the people that I talk to about my experience with uh, Ground Zero, with being at it. Now, I was through a lot of stuff in the fire department. Um, you know, I had the first bombing in the World Trade Center. We made a great rescue. We rescued 10 people in an elevator. And uh, we thought they were dead because they were in an elevator near the bottom of the uh, shaft and the doors in the garage in the first bombing in 93, February 26, 1993, first the doors were blown off the elevator, so it became a chimney. Um, the NIST study on that fire, they talk about the stack effect, which is the movement of smoke. And there was smoke detectors on the 110th floor went off in less than five minutes because it was a February Friday morning. It was 37 degrees outside inside the building, depending on the floor, because the heat rises inside the building, the temperature was anywhere from 72 to 75 degrees. So the thermal effect, it brought all that smoke up because it was trying to equalize the pressure. So there, these people were in this elevator and they were, we thought they were dead. They were uh, black as your behind the shield um, logo, the background of it because of the soot and everything. And then I was involved in Schomburg Plaza where we lost uh, seven people in a fire. I had another car accident where we lost uh, nine people in the car accident. So there were a lot of things that went through this. And back then there was no help available. I mean, 
back in my father's generation and even in my early career, you know, they, they said to you, go get to have a drink, get over it. You know, and that's what that, that what's what they told you. The worst thing you can do for somebody. Okay. You know, yeah, go just, you know, forget about it. Go get yourself blottoed and forget about it. And it, it doesn't work that way. And my experience with counseling was um, I went, I, I, and I, I, I guess we can get into this right now. That, yeah, absolutely. My, uh, my little girl, my daughter was six years old after um, on uh, 9-11. And um, she looked at me, really, she was five years old because she hadn't quite turned six yet. She was just about six. And she looked at me and said, Daddy, why are you always mad? And uh, like, again, I grew up a uh, tough, tough Irish Catholic kid, uh, used to like to fight, um, had no problem with it, used to have friends. We used to go out uh, looking for trouble. And back then, a fight was a fight. You had a fight. It was, you know, different groups of people. Um, it was all good. And then you went home. No, nobody ever pulled out a weapon. Nothing else happened. It was just fun. And um, I've been in a lot of fights. And that punch from that five-year-old girl was the toughest punch I ever took in my life. It buckled my knees. And my wife looked at me and said, the kids are scared of you. Because you're hair trigger, you're angry. And it was one of the worst things that ever happened to me. And I said, Oh my God. So I went, we had a counseling available and I never thought I needed counseling, you know, cause it's a blind spot. You don't see yourself the way others do. And, um, my wife, thank God we've been together for, uh, over 40 years now as a couple. And my wife said, they're scared of you. So I said, okay, I'm going to go get counseling. So I went, and they said, okay, we got this person for you. Go see this person. And the first person I went to was a young, just out of college, young female, my niece's age. She was like 25 years old. And I looked at her and I said, I'm sorry, I can't talk to you. No offense, but you have no idea what my life is like. And she was like, I understand that. I understand that. She was very good. The second woman they sent me to, they sent me to another woman, was an older woman who was had a voice that was like fingernails on a chalkboard to me and it just it i can still hear it and it was a squeaky voice and i was like there's no way i'm going to talk to this person it just because all i'm going to hear is and i said no good the third person i got like you said was that clinician who was a new york city cop we had worked in the same neighborhoods in a couple of places. He had been stabbed twice, shot once. The guy chewed the same ground. Uh, we knew the same things and we clicked. My wife used to call him my boyfriend. And she used to say, hey, you're getting a little testy. When are you going to see your boyfriend? He said, oh, yeah, I got an appointment this week. Oh, good, good. Because it is helping. Good. And she had my back the whole way and everything else. And it was truly, I mean, um, I've done some research on it. I've done some studying. I've done some talking on it. The difference between the post-traumatic stress and the post-traumatic growth is the growth opens you up to so much more. My relationship with my wife has flourished. My relationship with my kids has flourished. Um, 
I am in a better place. Uh, I have gotten stronger. I am also more empathetic. I look at things uh, from a different perspective, and I try to get outside of my um, box where I am and see things from other people's point of view. And it really has changed my life. And it's so important to understand that. Well, I think that's the the part of the conversation that you don't hear very much. Like, you know, the the awareness piece of PTSD or PTS or whatever acronym people want to use, I think is out there now, you know, more so than ever. And it's fantastic. But I think we've kind of hit a, a wall where people are talking about it. People are doing 22 push-ups and it's the next step. Like, how do we not only find the right people, but also the post-traumatic growth is such a big piece of the puzzle. You know, and I talk about the analogy for me was my back injury. I hurt my back lifting a patient years ago, found an amazing movement practice, very long story, very short, managed to avoid painkillers and surgery and just rehab. And uh, my back was not only as good, it was better, you know, it was stronger than it had ever been. And that is the point. Your favorite sports stars use psychologists so they can get in that flow state they need the calm calm mind with that flow state well when we have when we're burying all our you know trauma that we've seen whether it's childhood whether it's relationships whether it's what we see and do in this profession we become worse and worse at our job and when people understand that the mental health side the psychology side makes you a better firefighter i think that's the real buy-in piece that we need to put into the conversation i agree wholeheartedly it makes you a better person, and it also makes you a better firefighter. And I always used to tell my guys, listen, this is the way everybody gets treated. Everybody gets treated the way I want my mom treated. And then their reaction to how I treat them is how things go. And uh, I remember one of my uh, guys, young black uh, gentleman, Brian good kid. We go to a, um, a small fire. It was a closet fire. The woman had stuff in her closet and she was an African-American woman, had stuff in her closet that fell down onto the light bulb, set the closet on fire. She opened up the door, fell down onto a carpet and she was, you know, very worried. So we get there, we put it out, we roll up the carpet, we take it outside, we clean out the closet, take it outside, put it on the lawn and a woman's standing there crying. And I walk up to her and I say, man, it's okay. Everything's fine. Everything's fine. She goes, no, no, no. My son is an NYPD sergeant. And I think he's going to hear about this on the radio because he knows this is my address and he's going to get himself hurt coming over here. And I said, we can fix that. Look at a cop out on the front lawn, a young lady. I said, come here. And I said, what's your son's name? And she said, Sergeant. And I won't tell her last name because, but she said, Sergeant Smith. And I said, okay, get on the radio, tell Sergeant Smith. There was a small fire at his mom's house. It is under control. It is out. She is outside. Everything is fine, but she's worried about him hearing about it and getting upset. Could you please put that out over the air? She said, absolutely, sir. And she did. And so we get there. We wait for the son to show up and he comes up and he's up there. Mom, are you okay? Yes, yes. The fireman treated me so good. Thank you. I just didn't want you to get in a car accident coming here and everything else. And so they, we got it all done. And I, I said, you know, this carpet that you had, the runner in the hallway, it's beautiful. It's like an oriental rug. There's one little burn hole here. You can get that fixed. She goes, I don't want that in my house anymore. It was on fire. I said, man, this is a beautiful piece. 
you want this in your house. You can get this fixed. Do not throw this out. And she looks at it. She goes, it does have some history. She goes, maybe you're right. I said, I'm right. I guarantee you it will not catch on fire. I give you my word. And we get all done. And I'm standing next to this tall, young, good-looking African-American firefighter. And this older black woman comes up and gives me a hug and gives a kiss on my cheek and says, thank you so much. And my young fireman looks at me and says, Cap, you get the kiss. The young, good-looking stud black guy gets nothing. <laughs> Why? I said, it's because of the way you treat people, Brian. And he wasn't treating her in any way. I said, I just went above and beyond with this woman. And I felt her need to be reassured. And I just went through it. And I said, that's the way you treat people. And he was like, okay, okay, good to know. You know, you got to treat everybody with respect and dignity. I don't care who they are. And that is one of the tenets that we do. And when you are hurting, you become angry and you snap. The guys and the girls at three o'clock in the morning with the old ladies having a problem. And she called the fire department because the smoke detector is beeping. She doesn't know what's the battery. And the one guy who's there, and probably not for the right reasons, who, you know, works to and um, bangs nails for or whatever else he does, he's there, what the hell are you calling us for? You whoa, whoa, whoa. You can go wait in the truck. You can go wait in the truck. Okay, ma'am, sorry. This is what the problem is. It's a bad battery. Do you have any more batteries? And we'll put a new battery in it and eliminate your problem. Treat everybody as you would want them to treat your mother or your grandmother. And you can never go wrong. And you can never go wrong. I agree 100%. That, that term compassion fatigue, I think, is perfect. You know, and, and, there's, and there's environmental elements that contribute to it that I talk about all the time. I think especially outside the Northeast, you know, the 56-hour work week, these men and women getting just driven into the ground and then getting mandatory, that absolutely has a, a factor as well. But I wrote a book about 18 months ago, and one of the chapters was about some of the most memorable calls that I've had, or one of the most memorable calls. And it was nothing heroic. It was a back-to-bed call. It was an elderly couple that the the wife has fallen out of bed. The the husband now is so frail in a World War II generation that he can't pick the love of his life off the ground. She's you know she saw it herself, so we go in, we clean her up, we put her back to bed. She's got her dignity, and that's it. Four strong men show up, you know, show some kindness and compassion, and then leave. But and this was kind of like a culmination story, a culmination of a bunch of calls. But basically, then you'd see pictures like most people have on their house. And this person was a police officer or a firefighter or, or, or a veteran or a doctor. Or what it does, it's irrelevant what it was. They were a strong, functioning member of society, and now they're there. So we owe it to our members of the community to remember the same kindness and compassion that led us into this profession when we're tired. I mean, this job beats you down, but once you lose that, you lose the very purpose that, that made you become a firefighter in the first place. And that's when it's time for that reset, whether it's a vacation, whether it's uh, a day of fishing, um, you know, uh, whatever your passion is, a day of golf. I mean, for me, golf is a good walk road, okay? But fishing is perfect. I mean, stand there for hours. And what are you doing? Um, relaxing. I am rejuvenating, but I am also contemplating. And I am just doing my whole meditation thing. It's perfect. 
uh, I love to tell the story. I have a wife and two daughters. And uh, one day uh, I went out at night and I'm down by a local fishing spot. And it's a little late. And a police officer comes up and he says, hey, man, what are you doing? I said, I'm fishing. He says, what are you fishing for? I said, peace and quiet. And he said, no, 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 I'm not kidding. I said, peace and quiet. And he looked at me and he said, are you trying to be an idiot? I said, no. I reeled it in. I said, there's no hook on this. It's a sinker. I'm throwing it in the water. I said, my wife and my daughters are home and they are arguing and they're bittering back and forth. And I just wanted to get some peace and quiet. And you're interrupting it. And he said, have a nice night. (laughs) He went away. Okay. But. It's true. Whatever your thing is, whether you do woodworking, whether you do reading, whether you have to go outside in the backyard with a flashlight, sit down with a book that you love and go through all this stuff. And I also am a huge music guy. I love music. I love live music. I go to shows all the time. And there is a great song by a guy by the name of Dave Alvin, who's one of my favorites. And I've turned Mike Galliano onto him. But it's off an album called Ashgrove, and it's called The Man in the Bed Isn't Me. Okay? And I'm telling you the words to the song, The Man Isn't the Med, and The Man in the Bed Isn't Me. Uh, not long ago, I was young and wild and free. The nurse over there doesn't know that I could have broken her heart a few years ago. Okay? And it's just, it's like, you know what? This guy, this girl, they were somebody. Okay, and old age isn't nice to any of us, but they were still they were a productive member of our society and they have to be treated like that. And if you are starting to burn out, sometimes you have to take that time to get away and the officers have to know that. And they have to be the person because what's going to happen and what happens occasionally is that person snaps. That person who has the fatigue from the runs from the uh, 48 hours on and it's they're 42 hours into it, it's four o'clock in the morning and they're sitting there and they get a call and they snap at some older uh, resident who happens to be the mayor's mother-in-law or the city councilman's uh, uncle. And they go, yeah, those firemen were so nasty. They were screaming at me. Why did I call them? You can't do it. The officers have to recognize that. And the members have to recognize that if it's happening with the officer and sit down and say, hey, you know, this is not what we do. This is not our values in this fire department. This is not our values in this company. We go for people's service. And again, people have different uh, ideas. The norms have changed as we go down and that's okay. So I think it's something that we have to look at and we have to be aware of each other and because as an officer there have to be people who can come up to you and say listen excuse me cap chief lieutenant can i talk to you for a minute can i ask you about this you know you tell us you want us to treat people right but what you did on that last run and you have to say you know what you're right you have to be willing to take your collar brass off and put your ego aside and say you know what you're right you know what i ask you to do I should be doing. And we don't always. And that's human nature. But I always want the best for my crew. And sometimes I don't do the best for my crew. Yeah, well, it's so, uh, you know, so important to hear that. And I think 
I can say my my career started in 2004, so I'm you know relatively or not relatively very short compared to yours. But even in my timeline, when I look back, there were times where you know we jumped on someone who was seemingly having a bad day as as a bunch of hyenas in the the firehouse. And now I look back and go, ah, they were probably hurting. They were probably burned out. And and what we did was the polar opposite of what we should have done. We should have, mm-hmm. you know, gone around the back and said, hey, are you all right? And instead, we're making fun of them. And, you know, the big red button is there and we're all just pushing it over and over oh, again. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we do that. Um, and listen, I think, um, you know, I've heard a lot of stuff about the fire service and about hazing and all that. And very honestly, um, I have no, I have no problem with having jokes in the firehouse, with having stuff going on in the firehouse. Because if you're not having fun, you're doing something wrong. Okay, we can have bad days, we can have bad weeks, we can have bad years. Okay, that's okay. But if you're sitting in the corner of the firehouse and you're miserable, there's something wrong. Now, that being said, and I can tell some great. I mean, I remember going into the firehouse one day and sitting down in the easy chair um, that I liked in the kitchen. And about two minutes later going, son of a gun, son of a gun, they wet the cushions, okay? (laughs) And now my whole bottom is soaking wet, okay? They got me, okay? They used to mess with my coffee. I love my coffee. And they used to put like um, red hot flakes in the coffee and stuff like that. Okay, they got me, they got me, but you know, I would get them back. I would get them back and not having fun in the firehouse means there's something going on. But if somebody is hurt, somebody is upset, there has to be a way that we can sit down and talk to them. And that's the thing that the fire department is losing, is the brother and sisterhood. Because of these mobile devices that we all have, instead of going into the kitchen, we used to talk about sitting down after the meal and talking because the probies, the young guys, want to get up and do all the dishes and get everything done and get them. No, no, no. You have to sit here for 10 or 15 minutes and you have to talk. We have to talk to each other. Yeah. Yeah. You have to talk. You have to talk about what's going on. How's your wife doing? Um, she's pregnant, right? Everything going well. When is she due? Are you getting time off? Do you have everything scheduled for it? Okay, good. Good. Do you know what you have in? Uh, good. Okay. What's going on? Hey, how's your uh, kid doing? I know your kid was having some broke their leg playing baseball or whatever else. Or your kid's a wrestling all-star. How's your kid doing in the States? What's going on? How are they ranked? What's happening? But we're losing that family. Okay. And I've said this a couple of times. There are people out there who want to turn the fire service into a job, not a calling not a vocation, not an advocation, okay? When you do something that you love, it doesn't become work, okay? But you have to be willing to do that. There were people who want to make this, you know, we're here for a job. We're here to do a job. It's not a job. It's not a job. It's a, it's a vocation. It is an avocation. It is something that we love, and we have to be willing to look at it like that and treat it like that. We are so blessed to be members of the fire service, okay? The things that we do, the things that we can do together, the brother and sisterhood. My wife uh, had my second daughter 
uh, and had all kinds of problems. Um, she, my youngest daughter, I like to say she was a terrorist. And she tried to come out of the womb on her own before my wife was ready. And my wife bled to death, pretty much. She had 36 units of blood. And this goes back into the lack of uh, any kind of therapy because my wife was on life support for 12 days. My daughter was born February 9th. Uh, on Valentine's Day, I was called back to the hospital to say goodbye to my wife. She was in a drug-induced coma, and um, they told me that she wasn't going to make it through tonight. And I sat there, and I get very emotional thinking about this. And I told her that it was okay to get go. Uh, I knew she had fought a valiant fight and that she could um, count on me to do my best to raise our two girls on our own. And I bring this up for two reasons. First, my wife was in a coma, a drug-induced coma. She said she heard everything I said. And she tried with every ounce of her strength to squeeze my hand, just to squeeze my hand. And she couldn't move her hand. So anybody who was out there who was going through things with family members, I tell them all, talk to them, talk to them, be honest with them, talk to them and be open with them. And uh, that was a lot. But getting back to the story for me, the New York City Fire Department took care of me. I didn't go to work for a while. I was off. I was assigned to the chief of department's office. I had to call the doctor, uh, the head medical officer once a week and talk to her. And um, they took care of me. Back in the day, now I'm talking back, this was 95. We still had the answering machine with the cassette in it. Okay. The cassette went out. It was an hour worth of messages. It would no longer take any messages. There was an hour worth of messages. The amount of food that was in my house, I contacted a local um, church at the time to get rid of some of this stuff because there was so much stuff. I was throwing food out. The brotherhood and sisterhood was amazing. Uh, my division commander, because my daughter was born in February, um, Easter was, uh, my wife got home after 16 days in the hospital and she was, um, she had had a seizure. So she was on um, anti-seizure medicine and blood thinners. So the Dilantin and the Coumadin and everything, she was all swollen up, her knuckles, it was horrible. And my division commander showed up at my house. And he said, my wife went shopping because you have two little kids and Easter's coming. And brought us Easter baskets, a lamp. Uh, stuff for the family. I mean, just amazing. The support network we have, we have to keep that in place. We have to make this part of what we do in our organization, whether it's on your shift or on another shift, we have to make this part of the organization, the brother and sisterhood. Okay. We have to know each other. We have to be able to help each other. And that's where we get our most support, because as you said earlier with the clinicians, this is the brothers and sisters who have walked that same path and they know what you're going through and they have to be able to come there and help you in that whole thing. And I think it's so important that we make sure that we get that. 
Absolutely. Well, firstly, thank you for, for sharing that story. It actually happened to one of my good friends and they'd had a baby and it was about two days later. She just started bleeding and bleeding and he almost lost her. So, you know, very, very similar story. But I see what you're talking about with the cell phones. I see, um, I think the, the individual dorms for each crew, phenomenal idea. But then you have to make sure that you spend a lot of time in the communal areas. You, I hear people just kind of hiding there. Um, and then when this COVID thing happened, I mean, I transitioned out of the fire service three years ago to focus on this. I just, you know, felt like this was making more of a difference than the department I ended up with at the end. But, I hear these stories of, oh, they're not allowed to, to eat together. You know, one's got to be in this room, one's got to be in this room. And I'm like, God, that, that couldn't be any worse. You're running calls together. You're in the same rigs together, but you can't sit down and, and have a, you know, a spaghetti dinner together and offload all the things you've had to deal with that day. I mean, absolutely no. horrendous. 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 And the individual bunk rooms, I understand that. And that's very, very appropriate. I still like the community dorm room. I still like the old guys snoring. Um, we used to have um, the old hospital beds and they had the bed posts on the side and we used to load them with rolls of toilet paper. And you knew who the guy was who was snoring all night long when you got up in the morning and looked and one bed had like 15 rolls of toilet paper all around it, okay? <laughs> because they would just airmail them at them in the middle of the night. But um, if you are doing that, I think... One of the things to do is set a time after every meal before you can get up from the table and clean up the kitchen, whether it's 15 minutes, whether it's 20 minutes, whether it's a half an hour, where you sit and have a discussion and talk about it. You can talk about politics. You can talk about uh, local government. You can uh, complain. You can bitch and moan. That's okay. Okay. But you have to keep communicating back and forth. And I think the other thing that is very important is that we all have to understand that you can bitch and moan. I mean, I like to joke the fire department is the only job in the world where we start off with a coffee break. Okay. We start our day with a coffee break and then we sit and talk and you can sit in the kitchen and you can talk about everything. You can be complaining about the mayor, the fire chief, the city council, your husband, your wife, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your kids, your dog. Um, but. Once it's time to go to work, all of it gets put away. It's not negative. It all gets put away and we go do our job and we go out and we work and we work in the firehouse and we clean up the firehouse. The other thing that's huge to me in the firehouse is the condition of the firehouse. Okay. I think that says volumes. Now, I have worked in firehouses that pride themselves on being dirty. Okay, uh, I was assigned to a firehouse where the uh, engine company next door was known as La Casa Caca. Okay, and the reason it was in the back in the day, it was a little two story firehouse. Okay, they used to have 12 men in there and they had two bowls. That was it. So if somebody got uh, made a bad meal, there was a problem. Okay. And they used to joke about it all the time. They would start the rig up at three o'clock in the morning and hose down the kitchen because that's the only communal space they had in the firehouse was the kitchen. And they would stretch a booster line and wash down the kitchen. And that's, that's fine. But do you, I don't want to live where I'm worried about bringing stuff home to my wife and kids like roaches or rats or something like that. So I like a clean firehouse. Now that's personal. You could like whatever you want, 
But I think the thing is, even if the firehouse is dirty, I look at the rigs. And if the rigs are spotless, if the rigs are, uh, the tools are spotless, the tools are clean, then I say, okay, at least they're taking care of what they're supposed to take care of. I mean, I know places live on a reputation of dirt. I've been in firehouses where they polish urethane to the kitchen table with the cockroaches still in the, on the table. And um, if that's what you want to do, that's fine. But your rigs, your tools, your equipment better be spotless, better be set to go. And I think that's one of the big things. And that's also how we have a lot of fun as we go working. Um, you know, we used to be Saturdays, ladders. We put take every ladder off the rig, wash every ladder. Okay. Um, Sundays would be the kitchen. We'd empty out the refrigerator, we'd clean the refrigerator, we'd go through all of the stuff. And again, we work together. We work and make things do. Every Monday was a rope drill, no matter what. We drilled on uh, ropes, life-saving ropes, and how to do it. And it's getting that time together. We used to go up to the bunk room and have drills and work. What are we going to do if we have to do this? What are we going to have to do if we got to do this? And I think that's part of it. Um, for the young men and women out there, especially who are in places where they don't want to drill, where their officers don't want to drill, go out and spend some time on your own drilling. Learn about your job. Uh, Patty Brown, uh, rest in peace, was killed on 9-11. But Patty Brown used to say, you can never train enough for a job that might kill you. Go out there and get some time. Uh, read a magazine. Read Fire Engineering. Read uh, Firefighter. Read, um, look on YouTube. Uh, fire Porn, as we call it. Whatever you, but train, read stuff, pay attention and start learning stuff and try to get the brothers and sisters involved. Okay. It's very difficult in some small places to do this, but drilling, practicing, getting good at your craft, honing your craft is so important, so important. And it also brings you together. Hey, what if we tried this? You know, could we do this? What about if we do that? Okay, and be willing to learn, be willing to experiment, be willing to try. I would say that absolutely the the pinnacle of my career was actually very early on. It was for Anaheim Fire Department in California, who I know actually have a good relationship with you guys. And I, I see so many, so much of the FDNY influence in the way we were trained. But they held the bar incredibly high. Usually of the probationary class, about 25% would be let go by the end of the year. So they set that bar and they were like, there it is. <laughs> you know, you either want it or you don't. Um, and I saw that foster so much community in the firehouse. There was a, a kind of self-motivation when it came to the fitness side. We were always training. There was a ladder day weekly. I mean, just, and then the, you know, the realism and the training that we did, you know, when, when we were training, we were training, like properly training. Um, and one of my, you know, the main block of that time was on truck one. And we got a tiller truck, so it was like a fireman's wet dream. And uh, I had a salty old uh, captain who actually looks a lot like you, Terry Wilson. And it was just a dream crew. My friend was, my partner was from Africa, was, excuse me, from South Africa. I was from the UK. And then Terry was, uh, I guess, Irish-American. And then Joe, my engineer, was Mexican-American. So they called us the United Nations crew. <laughs> but it was, uh, it was, you know, it was that, you know, this house rocks experience. And I, and I talked to Mike about this. And sadly, I ended up chasing that when I moved back east. 
the rest of my career. Never really found it. Worked with some great, great firefighters, but never found that cohesion. With your full career in volunteer and then and then uh, FDNY, what were some of the kind of areas that you found can enhance the likelihood of of creating that incredibly you know empowering dream crew that only some of us have really experienced? Well, there are quite a few things that involve that. First off, um, quite a few people have said it. Um, I've heard Alan Brunacini say it before he passed. Ego eats brains. If you think you're the smartest guy in the room, you're mistaken. Uh, I don't care what crew you're on. Somebody on that crew knows more than you do about something. Okay. Uh, I'm a big military history buff. I love to read about military history. Uh, I read a lot. But um, there are people who know more than I do on so many things. I had one guy on my crew who was a ropes guy. Uh, his father was in Rescue One. I used to joke that when he was a baby, he did not get a pacifier. He got a monkey's fist. Okay. And um, he would just, he knew knots. And if I needed knots, I'd say Newberry. Come here, we're going to go over a drill. We're going to have a rope drill. I turned it over to the guy who knew the most, okay? Uh, I had a guy who was a small engine mechanic, all of the tools. I turned over to him. Hey, Chris, what do, you, what do we need here? What do we need? What's going on here? Oh, we need this. We need that. I need cash to buy. They keep on um, misthreading the oil thing. I need to buy a couple of them. There'll be a couple of bucks, Cap. No problem. Here you go. Here's money. Go get them. Go get what we need, okay? Turn it over to the people who know it. Okay, that's the first thing. The officer can't believe they are the best, they are the smartest, they are the brightest, because they're not. Okay, they have one good Saturday, they got a test. Okay, and that's all it, it is. Okay, and the other thing is, your people are looking to how you do. Are you willing to learn? Okay, listen, I would look, try this stuff all the time. I remember being a senior captain on the FDNY and going to a rope drill, and we were going to bail out a window in a building. You know, and they had a net set up in case you failed, but on your personal stuff, your PSS, the personal safety system, we were going to bail out. And the guy in charge of the drill looked at me and said, hey, Cap, you don't have to go in with the guys. I said, the hell I don't. If my guys are doing this, I'm doing this. I'm bailing out the window with them and I'm bailing out lids. That's just the way it is. Okay. Um, I used to go, I used to teach with Chief Salka, John Salka, uh, get out alive stuff. And I remember the guys asking me, hey, can you teach us how to do the head first ladder bail? Yeah, I'll show you how to do it, but we got to set it up right. It's got to be in a protected, we got to have a safety line. We got to be able to, so nobody gets hurt. Okay. Because I mean, bumps and bruises in training. Okay. That happens. You, you, you turn a little bit, you're a bump and a bruise. Okay. Nobody gets hurt in training. Nobody gets seriously hurt in training. Okay. You make sure your safeties are in place. And we did that. And we used to train all the time. And I remember um, one time I was in ABC in the 4-4 battalion. And ABC is an acting battalion chief. And I was working. The guys, the chiefs used to be able, they started at 1800. And I used to be able to take from 1800 to midnight to um, 2400 hours off. And a lot of guys would do that during the spring and the fall when their kids were playing baseball games or soccer games. And you would go there for uh, six hours and work in a battalion. And one night I'm working in the 4-4 battalion 
And we have been, you know, the guys have been talking, hey, we heard, you know, about that head first ladder slide and how to do that. Can we do this? Can we practice it? I said, sure. And we had runs. We had um, a little job and everything. Then we sat down for the meal. It was 1030 at night. And they're like, hey, we still want to do that. Can we do this? Absolutely. And 1030 at night, the guys are doing head first ladder bales off the side of the engine with a 16 foot ladder just to learn how to do it because we didn't have a place they could really do it. And the chief who was working that night came in and he's looking and he goes, are you kidding me? It's 1030 and you're drilling these kids. And I go, I'm not drilling them. They're drilling me and they're teaching me stuff. And I said, they want to do it. And he was like, okay. I said, I'm going to stay for another 15, 20 minutes. You can you know, take your, your car if you want to, or you can take your time. But I got to finish this drill with these kids because they're into the job and drill any time. Uh, I've been places where they had union rules that work hours were from like eight o'clock in the morning till um, 17, 1800 hours. And after that, it was limited duty only for calls. And I said to one of the union people at one place I was at, I said, listen, I am so pro union. It'd make your head spin. But if I have a run at 3.30 in the morning and something happens and my guys and girls almost get hurt, I can't go back to the firehouse and have a talk with them about that? Oh, no. Nope. Not until the next shift. I said, you know what? My personal folder would be about that thick, would be about four inches thick from all the write-ups I had from the union because that ain't happened. You know, look at what happened to these poor troopers in Pennsylvania the other night. Uh, the two troopers were on the highway for um, a civilian walking on the highway. It turned out to be, uh, I think it was a homeless person and somebody who was DUI hit and killed the two troopers and the, the civilian. And um, one of the troopers was a, uh, a fire chief at a local volunteer fire department outside of uh outside of uh, Philadelphia and just horrendous. But if I have a problem on a highway at three o'clock in the morning, I'm coming back to talk to you about this. What's going on? If we have a problem at a fire, okay, I'm coming back and we're talking about this. There's also a time too that I like to talk about. I remember coming back from a fire one night and my senior man came up to me. My senior man's name was Tommy DeViti. Tommy was my chauffeur and he was a great guy. And he said, hey, Cap, I'm having a drill in the kitchen. I said, oh, okay, I'll be in in a minute. He goes, go take a shower. I said, what? He said, go take a shower. You're not invited. Okay. Uh, something happened. I don't know what happened. I didn't see it. I was not aware of it. But my senior man wanted to correct something with the fireman in my company. And he was doing it. And he was telling me, it doesn't involve me. And I'm like, you have to have those people you trust on the job. And that's what makes cohesion, having a senior person, having a senior man. Uh, don't make every decision. Don't make any decision if you can avoid it. Okay. Let the men and women make the decisions, especially about stuff in the firehouse. If I used to say, if I have to make a decision, if you come to me because you and you are fighting about this and I make the decision, then it's set in stone. But don't come to me to make the decision if, unless you can't work it out among yourselves. And I used to tell them, just, you know, figure it out. You know, you, uh, any man, any boss who's trying to make all the decisions in a firehouse is not only stagnating the growth of the men and women under them, 
It's also stagnating the entire company. And sooner or later, they're not going to do anything because you haven't made the decision. Let them do it on their own. Let them make mistakes. We all make mistakes. Anybody who hasn't made a mistake at a fire is a liar or a fool. Okay? And make the mistakes. And then learn from them. And educate them. And train them to take your place. Because sooner or later, every one of them is going to be in a position to take your place. And allow them that growth. Allow them that experience. And it's a great thing. Well, you talked about senior man. I had Al Benjamin from Rescue One on the show. And um, I mean, there's no better example of a senior man. And that's something that I witnessed. I ended up staying as a fireman the whole time. I moved, I was in four departments. So I'm basically like a firefighter gypsy, ultimately. But I stayed at the fire rank, which I loved. When I first entered, I had this like 10, 10, 5, you know, 10 as a firefighter, 10 as a captain, because it's Anaheim ranking, 5 as a BC. Nah, I, I always just wanted to be going in the door or cutting a hole in the roof. Um, but what I did witness is especially, and it's totally understandable. You've got this environment where, you know, a lot of these departments aren't very well paid. And so the, the rise to, you know, go through the ranks, whether it's, uh, you know, an ego thing or more importantly, probably a, a financial thing, you lose in, I think there's a, there's a loss of that senior man philosophy. And I think that's where I see some of the problems is now someone's got, you know, brass on the collar. Oh, well, I'm in charge now. Well, yeah, but do you know as much as, you know, someone who stayed in that position and you fly through these ranks, you've never really truly learned, you know, what it is to be a good firefighter or a good engineer. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I think the senior man element is so important in the firehouse. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the senior firefighters um, who have seen more in that company than you. When I was a captain, one, pro, uh, one promotion to lieutenant, I lost Tommy McGoldrick and John Taylor. John Taylor's nickname in Ladder 123 was the Sarge. There is no sergeant on the FDNY, but he was the Sarge. And Tommy McGoldrick was our union guy. And the two of them got promoted. And I lost 52 years of experience in one promotion. Two guys, 50. Okay. And it was unbelievable. But I will also talk about my senior men. John Taylor was the best chauffeur I had ever seen. The mechanics would come into the firehouse and look around and say, is the Sarge here? And they all knew him. And we go, no, no, no. He's working tomorrow. All right, I'll come back tomorrow. Okay. And he would go back and talk to the Sarge. And again, we have to look at all of these things because we had a program in the FDNY that John Taylor and Tommy McGoldrick was exempt from because he was our union rep. But John Taylor was um, taken out of my firehouse for six months to another company in Manhattan uh, before getting promoted so we could move around the city. And I wrote a letter that was um, pretty, um, it was a good letter, but it was pretty angry. Okay, because I thought the fire department screwed up and I wrote it and it went through to the borough command and Chief Kilduff, Ed Kilduff, who became chief of the department, said, Mike, I got your letter. It's a great letter, but it's not going any farther. You are going to punch yourself in the face with this letter. I said, OK. And again, because I was involved in a lot of stuff in the FDNY, uh, I was down in headquarters 
a couple of weeks later, and um, the chief of operations at the time uh, was Sal Cassano, and who was great man, great man. And I got called into his office after going on the, I was at the board of merit after going to the board of merit, I was called into his office and he says, Hey, Mike, you got a minute, come on into my office. And I'm like, "Uh Oh, and I go in and he goes, Hey, what's up? I heard there was a letter. And I said, yeah. He said, I haven't officially seen it. It wasn't forwarded, but I saw a copy of it because it was a good letter. He goes, but ain't changing. And he said, you know how much it came from above me? And he's the chief of operations, number two guy. He goes, my nephew's in it. And I said, chief, I understand that. I understand it's a good program. But I said, you screwed up. And he was like, excuse me? I said, you took John Taylor, the man with the most knowledge of Mount aerials, probably in the New York City Fire Department, and put him in Manhattan in a 95-foot tower ladder. I said, when he learned to drive tower ladders, they had to be shifted, okay? You had to lock, drop a, uh, a latch over the PTO to keep it from popping out of PTO. There was a nut in there that stuck out, and you had to drop this, like, clip down. Like, it was unbelievable. And I said, and you put him in a 95-foot tower ladder. I said, if you want the experience, use the experience. And a leader... Chief Cassano said, you're right. And he said, I'll fix it. I'll swap him. I said, you can't do that now. He's already there and he's made. He said, we'll look at it in the future. And that to me is a leader. You know, listen, you can make mistakes not thinking about it. You know, we want to get this guy to a different area and everything else. But if you're moving people for experience, you're senior man. If you're using their experience, if you're not using your people's experience, their things, um, a tree guy who knows saws, uh, a, a contractor who knows building, how buildings are built, you can work with them. There are so many people in the fire service who know so much, use their expertise, use their knowledge, and your company becomes better. As I like to say, if you know something in the fire service and you keep it to yourself, nobody benefits. But if you share it, the entire fire service benefits because, you know, you tell one fireman, they're going to tell 15 others. OK, and that's how we get the word out. That's how we spread the knowledge. OK, things that work, things that don't work. What happened? What's going on? Why did this happen? OK, and it's still relevant today. Well, that that example that you use as well reminds me of what I've seen. You know, I guess the one unique perspective I have is I've worked east and west coast. I've worked in four different departments. I would say probably one of the best in the country and one of the worst. So I have this <laughs> kind of unique lens. Um, and let's say in the poorer one, there was literally a, a philosophy where they would constantly move firefighters around because they don't want a firehouse to get too cohesive. So they would break up crews. They would move, you know, station to station. Conversely, what I saw in the good one was when you're embedded in your station, you know that first you so well. Like I can think, for example, one one place in um, Station One's first, and it was a guy who did weather testing. So you're like, okay, I've created this new material. I think it's going to last 100 years in all these conditions. And he would put it through all these crazy machines. So he looked, it looked like a crazy mad scientist laboratory. And he had a chicken wire room 
where a special needs girlfriend of his lived. So you would go on scene, the average person would be like, all right, it's a hazmat fire. We knew that around the back where all the beehives were, if you cut the roll-up door, you may save a life. Now, obviously, you know, there's the, she shouldn't be living there in the first place element, but you can't replace that kind of knowledge. You can't replace the station 70 in Orange County. We know if, you know, if the freight train comes down parallel to Orange Avenue, you're going to have to go all the way down to this other street to go around to get to the call. And so, you know, when you have the, the community element, the mental health element and the, the first you knowledge element, it's, it's insane to me that there's this philosophy of, oh, we need to quote unquote shake things up. We're going to move people around because a well trained individual that knows their first you is invaluable for rescue. Invaluable for rescue, invaluable for, um, officers that come in covering officers to fill a vacation or something else, having somebody who knows that area, drive them around, have somebody there. Now, if the driver is out there having a regular officer, don't put the two of them on vacation together. Okay. So the officer is on vacation and he likes the summer. So he's off over the first two weeks of July. Sorry. The senior driver can't have those two weeks off. You can have um, the 15th of December to uh, the 1st of January off. That's fine. That's your thing. That's what you want. Christmas with the family. That's fine. But having that situational knowledge, where the streets are, where everything is. And again, the knowledge is what you want your people to do. Um, One of the things I'm very proud of the New York City Fire Department for is our training, our what we do, okay? First off, our men and women are trained in the fire academy. And then when they get out, they come to the company and it's company level. And we teach them what we want at a company level. And we tell them what we want at a company level. But in the New York City Fire Department, you are trained in the buildings that you respond to. What is your neighborhood? Are they brownstones? Are they row frames? Are they multiple dwellings? Are they fireproof multiple dwellings? Okay. What are they? How are you doing these fires? Your position is going to vary depending on the building you respond to, where you are supposed to go. It's also going to vary if you're in a rear mount versus a tower ladder. Okay. But we do that. We train our people. We work with our people on the apparatus they are on and what they are. If you are starting to spread these people around, it is so detrimental to their growth in their situational growth in that fire community. Um, There are other places that will take you if you're on a a truck or an engine. They'll move you every six months. If you're on a truck, you go to an engine six months later. Then you go to a rescue or an ambulance for six months. Then you go back to a truck for six months. You never get good at what you're doing because you don't have the sets and reps. You don't have the time frame. You also don't have the thing. It's similar to the um, the military, uh, the Chinese fire service, where it's military based, and everybody's got a two year hitch. Well, you don't get anybody that's great after two years, okay? And the career guys, just every two years, all right, we got a couple more, couple more, couple more. Nobody gets good at what they're doing. Okay, we have to have our people and allow them to get good at what they're doing by allowing them to spend the sets and reps doing their job where they're going to be doing it 90% of the time. 
knowing their district, knowing those little streets, you know, before place, where before places, okay? It's a tiny one block street, okay? In my, was in my district, okay? Knowing where it is, training the guys. The uh, streets, it used to be in alphabetical order, how they went down, the cities. Um, they used to know that, you know, um, Utica Avenue went this way. And the we had, you know, Rochester, Utica, Schenectady, Albany Avenue. They were depending on where the, the cities were in the in the state as to what where the streets were. So the guys all knew this. When I was a fireman in Spanish Harlem in 43 truck, we used to know that the Evens streets in Manhattan, the Evens run east. Okay. And Norton from the honeymooners, Norton, Norton was an oddball. So the north side of the street is odd. Okay. We knew this. We knew where all our blocks were. We knew where our streets were. You could figure out where the address was. Okay. By knowing your district. And that is key. And knowing the buildings. We knew which buildings were tough. We knew which vacants we had. We knew what was going on inside certain buildings. And we would go there. And the other thing that to me is so vitally important goes back to the fire in the Worcester Cold Storage Warehouse. If you have a building in your district that you are afraid of, you should be drilling on that building once or twice a week. Okay. And there are buildings like that. There are buildings um, that, you know, um, just scare you and everything else. Uh, that building that had the fire up in the Bronx is a federally built building, not built to New York City building codes. And there was a lot of problems there. And they, again, they have to, you have to know your buildings. Okay. You have to know your buildings. We had one very similar to it. And what happens, we had a building called the Rutland Houses. The Rutland Houses are projects, but they're interconnected. And the hallways are up to 189, 85, 190 feet long, the hallways. And it's, you go in the lobby and then you go up to the third floor. And the third floor is the doors. And it's, the door goes in, in and up, in and down. Okay. So then there's the next floor, the next hallway is on the sixth floor. So it's, again, in and down, and it goes down and under, or in and up. So those buildings are tough, tough, tough buildings. You have to drill on this building all the time. We used to go there at least once a week, and we would have a drill on there. Where are we going? How are we getting in there? What's the address? Where are we going? What's going on? Because if you get one of the fires in there and you get an in and down, you have to advance down like a basement fire to get in there. And guys have done tremendous things at this building to get the line in place and everything else. Um, again, some iconic fires in this building. So you know this is a problem building. you got to train on it. And you got to drill on it. And that's what has that first do situational awareness, that district awareness, okay, apparatus awareness. What's coming with you? What are your neighborhoods? How am I going to get there? What's the best way? Where are the other rigs coming from? Am I going to leave room in front of me or behind me for the other rigs? Knowing all of that is so vital to making it work well for the fire department. 
Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. I mean, obviously, again, I'm, I'm looking at a slightly shorter lens than you, but I mean, that, that is it. And I've seen, you know, seen some of these buildings. Like I said, the one I talked about, if you didn't know what was in that building, um, you know, it, it would be terrifying when it finally, you know, went off. And even I'll, I'll give a perfect example. I just went a simple, uh, townhouse fire and probably one of the times that I've been most freaked out in a fire. And it was a two story, just a simple two story. But when you make entry, the entryway was two stories high. It made no sense from the outside looking in. It should have been a two-story, you know, full plan upstairs. So you get upstairs and in your mind, you're thinking of the, you know, the, the kind of footprint that would be downstairs and it wasn't. So you start hitting walls and I started freaking out a little bit. It's just in my mind, but then we start trying to open um, the window and it's, it's Florida. So they've got the hurricane rated windows. And yeah, I mean, just, and that was two-story, almost no danger whatsoever. But the moment my mental picture didn't match what I was feeling around, that threw me off. And that wasn't my first Jew. I think we were mutual aid. Well, not mutual aid, but we were a couple of districts over. But um, yeah, I mean, that and that tiny level. So then you add, we had a an ice house in, in um, Station 1 in Anaheim. They, they ended up tearing it down, but but and we never went in there. So we obviously failed on that particular one because I never actually got to look at that uh, specific place inside. And that ice house with the cork walls and everything else, that's what was the fire in the Worcester Cold Storage Warehouse. And they're around the country. And the other thing is, you mentioned hurricane windows. And I was up in Green Bay, Wisconsin, doing some training after Lieutenant Arnie Wolf died in Green Bay, Wisconsin. Green Bay's next hurricane will be there first. But because this was in an area called Players Row, where the, the people, very, very wealthy, where the players lived and everything else, high-end homes with hurricane windows. Okay, hurricane windows aren't shouldn't be called hurricane windows. They should be called impact resistant windows because they are throughout the country. And the people who are driving, putting them in are the insurance companies because they want their properties protected. And I live on Long Island and we've had a couple of good hurricanes on Long Island. Okay, but my insurance company offered me a 10 percent reduction if I put hurricane windows in my house and my and my homeowners. So, again, it's. Part of this, you have to, if you don't know what a hurricane window is, you could be in Oshkosh and end up finding hurricane windows. When you go out on drill, go out and practice, go out and look up a hurricane window. How are you going to get through it? Okay, because they are very, very, very difficult to get through. And you might not be able to get out of there if it's a solid one piece window. You have to have a plan, you have to know where it is. If I know there are hurricane windows in a structure, I'm not advancing past the first hose line until they've got the fire under control because I don't want to get caught where I can't get out. So I think it's something that's vitally important to us. And it, that goes back to training, knowledge, going out of your district, getting out on the fire truck and looking at what's being built. Ask the contractor, what kind of windows you're putting in here? Are they single pane, double pane, uh, thermal? Are they energy uh, efficient? Are they hurricane windows? Are they impact resistant? Okay, I mean, Pelham now makes a window with three panes of glass in it with a argon pumped in between the uh, second and third thing for an R value in the window. And I mean, um, you could throw a brick at it and the window would laugh at you. You know, so you got to know what's going on in your area. And that all comes from local knowledge going out. And the other thing is you go out, bring a cell phone or a digital camera, take some pictures. And start some kind of record in the firehouse where you can use it for training. Bring it up. Hey, this is 123 Main Street. 
Remember, this building, this used to be a theater, and now it's a grocery store, but there's all kinds of stuff above the ceiling. They put a drop ceiling in there. Do you want to know about this? Absolutely. Okay, you want to know about all your buildings that are problems. And that's easy to do, and it's a great drill. Beautiful. Well, I want to get to the yeah, you some of the events in your specific career. Um, before we get to the FDNY, just to love to touch firstly on how you found yourself in the volunteer fire service and then law enforcement before fire. Um, in the volunteer fire service, um, I was a young kid, Irish Catholic, growing up, uh, St. Patrick's, 745 Mass every Sunday. Uh, my father and I would get up and we would uh, get ready for breakfast. But back then you couldn't eat before you had communion. So we would cook the bacon and then put it on the, the plate to uh, and come home, save the bacon grease because we cooked the eggs in the bacon grease. Okay. And we would get ready and then we would go to church. And the second pew on the right side of St. Patrick's, second pew and third pew was for my family, my aunts and uncles, my grandfather. And the first pew was for Burwood Home for the Blind. And every morning we would go in there and you would go up to communion. And back then you had to kneel at the altar for communion and you would escort a blind person up to get communion, kneel next to them, stand back up, escort them. It was community service. And my family would sometimes we would get together for breakfast, go to one place. So one Sunday morning, I'm about 11 and the phone rings. We had Two phones in the house at the time. Three phones. I'm sorry. Three phones. One in the den, one on the kitchen wall, and one in my parents' bedroom. That was it. Okay. And the phone rang at 7, 6.45 in the morning, and I heard my father say, okay. All right. All right. To call the fire department? Okay. All right. Good. All right. I'm on my way. And he looked at me and he said, your grandmother's house is on fire. I got to go. And I said, I'm coming with you. And he said, no, you're not. And I said, no, no, I'm coming with you. And he said, no, you're not. And I said, well, they live at the end of a, a road on Long Island at the time. And there are three driveways. How are they going to know which one to go in? First time I ever heard my father say a bad word. He said, shit, you're right. Get in the car. I got in a Buick station wagon that had a metal dashboard. No seatbelts. And we were on four wheels for about 30% of the trip. Okay. We got there. He threw me out at the end of the driveway. Drove in up on the grass. I never saw my father like this. And my grandmother and my maiden aunt, my aunt Helen, were on the second floor. And the volunteer firefighters showed up and they did what I call VEIS. They went in the second floor window, got my grandmother and my aunt out, down, and the house burnt to the, pretty much burnt to the ground. I mean, it was a long burning fire. The um, living room, the carpet held up. But the basement fire, there was no floor under it. If any fireman had stepped on the carpet, they would have gone through. The piano was moving in my grandmother's house towards the uh, floor. So uh, I saw them get in there and make a rescue. And I've said, that's pretty cool. So the day I turned 18, I joined the volunteers. And uh, then somebody told me, um, you know, this is great. I'm a volunteer. Um, my first couple of years in the volunteers, we went to more fires. I don't know why. Uh, I remember being at one place called Corner Wines and Liquors. It's on a New York Avenue and Main Street in Huntington. And I'm up on the roof. I'm a probie. I'm up on the roof. And my mother and father are driving home from being out to dinner. 
My mother goes, thank God they wouldn't let Michael somewhere like that. I'm standing up on the roof and she doesn't even know it. So I was like, this is great. Then I was working. I was doing all kinds of different jobs. And I got a job doing being a rigger and a millwright. So moving heavy equipment and uh, lifting stuff, rigging it into buildings, safe through third story windows, artwork, all kinds of great stuff. I was having a great time. I loved it. And I was getting paid very, very well. And then the, um, the economic downturn, 79 to 80 in New York City, where New York City was, you know, they told New York City, uh, you know, you, Fed said, you know, that's it. They said, no, no, we're not bailing you out. So there was no work around. There was nothing. And I was dying. So I said, I'm going to look for a job that has benefits, that has something. So I took the PD test and I took the FD test. And um, I got on the FD first. I, I'm sorry, I got on the PD first. And I went on PD and um, I, I ended up um, going across to the fire department in, uh, on 10-7-1985. I went on with 150 guys. And of those 150 guys, uh, 64, I think, or 65 were former NYPD officers. Two were sergeants, three were sergeants, and one of the sergeants was on the lieutenant's list, and they all went over. I went to hand to turn my gun in to the desk officer, who was an old Irish guy in the precinct that I was working, the 111 at the time in Bayside, Queens. And I said, hey, listen, Sarge, I'm going down to the property section to turn my uh, pistol in. I'm uh, resigning uh, effective uh, uh, Monday morning because I'm going into the fire department. And the old sergeant looks at me and he says, hi, lad, do me a favor. And I said, sure, Sarge, what is it? He goes, don't walk, run, go. Best thing you've ever done. And away I went. So I came on the uh, New York City Fire Department in uh, 1985. And I was my class valedictorian. And I went to one of the slowest straw companies in the city of New York. And I was dying. I was dying. Um, I missed my first run on the FDNY. I had to walk across the street, through a parking lot, into another parking lot to get to the supermarket. And the firehouse was, uh, their motto at the time was the washed up brothers on the beach. Uh, and all of the guys in there had years on the FDNY, years. And they were just biting out the end of their careers. Okay. And we were sent there to kill the overtime. But I was like, this is horrible. So anyway, I'm there and I missed my first run because I went to the supermarket and I see the rig driving down a block and they're waving to me and they think it's hysterical. And I'm missing my first run on the FDNY. And I was like, oh, I got to get out of here. I got to get out of here. So uh, I went to a fire with one of the guys I worked with, a guy by the name of John Donnelly, who was excellent. And uh, he had done a lot of time in a great firehouse. And I see a captain talking to the deputy chiefs, talking to all the chiefs. And I looked at John and I said, who's that guy over there? And he said, oh, that's Richie Fanning. He's uh, the commissioner's executive officer. And I said, and you have given him my paper so I can get out of here? And he goes, um, didn't think about it. He's one of my neighbors. I'll take care of him. So he gets a copy of my paper and he goes and sees this guy. I get married. I'm on my honeymoon. 
And I get back and I got about three phone call messages. I'm getting transferred. Where am I going? Spanish Harlem, 43 truck. I said, I, I didn't even know. They said, 43 truck. I said, where is it? I didn't even know about it. And I said, you're going to Spanish Harlem. I said, okay. And uh, I said to the guy, do they do work? And he said, you'll be very happy. I said, okay, thank you. And that's where it was. I went across the floor. Two guys from the engine came across the floor and I was the contract. I went in and um, yep. So I ended up at 43 truck um, from uh, 86 to 94 as a fireman. Uh, great time. Great guys. Um, some crazy fires. Um, we had uh, some big fires. Schaumburg Plaza was the one with the seven people died. Um, the family, the mother forced the three kids out the 34th floor window. And um, the youngest was a 12-year-old girl and her clothes were on fire when she jumped. And the mother was my first real um, roast. My first real, um, excuse my comment, but she was a fire victim and it was horrible. It was horrible. And, um, but I told the story and I'll still tell the story. Um, the apartment door, it's a wind-driven fire. and We didn't know wind-driven fires at the time. Apartment door is fluttering. And the peephole in the door is burnt out. And there's fire blowing over our heads from the peephole. And then there's a, the lock, the brass lock is burnt out. And there's fire coming past us. We don't have hoods. We have helmets. We have our coats. And we have our three-quarter boots. And we're told to go down the hallway. And my lieutenant was a very short man. And we tried going down the hallway with two, two and a half at Schomburg Plaza. And we got beat back both times. Cooked up. Got back. And then my lieutenant said, let's go. We're going to go force the adjoining apartment door. And I'm like, okay. And we go into the adjoining apartment. And uh, I'm working with this African-American firefighter, Kirk Lester, one of the best guys I ever worked with. One of the guys, if you're ever in trouble, you want Kirk Lester on the crew that's coming to get you. Okay, he's never out of position, nowhere wrong. But through the smoke, I hear, hey, you big donkey, you better hit that halligan fast. Let's go. Let's get out of here. And I said that on a, um, another podcast. And Kirk called me that afternoon and said, that wasn't me. That was the boss. That was Scarcus, the Greek. <laughs> and I said, all I remember is hearing it. And it wasn't that nice. He didn't say it that nicely, but I'm editing it for uh, our podcast. But they said, you big donkey and used a couple of um, intonations and you better force this door. So we did. We got through there. And my lieutenant, who was really smart, got us in there. And then he had us pop a hole in a wall because there were sheetrock walls and dumped the two and a half in there. Fire was out in 45 seconds. It was amazing because the wind just brought it in, just put the fire out. And then we had to go in there. And that's, you know, I had to put this woman in a body bag. It was horrible. So that was one. And uh, there were quite a few fires. There were a lot of fun fires. I also uh, was very lucky. I made a rescue in 43 truck uh, where um, I came back. It was December 23rd. I had been to another firehouse detailed that day. And I come back and I'm coming into the firehouse and I got my gear and the guys are looking at me and they're like, what are you doing? I said, I'm coming back. I was down driving so-and-so today. And they're like, did you work last night? No, I just worked today. I was detailed. Can you work tonight? And I'm like, uh, what's going on? Well, we're missing a guy. 
And um, there's a tour available of overtime. Two days before Christmas, a 15-hour overtime, I'm like, yeah, I can work. And 43 Truck used to do it that the junior person working, the junior man, the junior woman working, would write the riding list. They would go up because, again, we had five firemen working and a boss. But they would go up and they would know who was working. And they would also know who the senior person was, who was the driver, who got what, whatever else. They would write the writing list and present it to the boss. Hey, boss, here's what's going on, especially if we had a covering boss who wasn't from the firehouse, wasn't assigned. I go, how you doing, boss? I'm your junior man. I'm Mike Dugan. I got the can. Um, Jimmy Sears has the irons. Um, Bobby Cerisi has the roof. Kirk Lester is driving. And Johnny Cologne has the OV, whatever it was. But the senior man always got their pick. And it always went by seniority down the list. And the junior man got whatever was left. So I come in this night and they go, okay, um, you can work. Yeah. Yeah. Let me call home. Just make sure she knows I'm not coming home. And I called home and I let the wife know back in the day of cell phone of um, um, public phones, pay phone in the, uh, in the stairway on the firehouse. Tell my wife, I'm not coming home. I got overtime. She goes, Oh, nice. Before Christmas, it'll come in handy to pay the bills. Yep. So I go and I uh, get, I was like, yeah, I can work. And I go, okay, you got the roof. Now I was the senior man working that night, except for the, sh the chauffeur, the driver. And I said, oh, oh, okay, well, I'm on overtime. So it kind of softens the blow. I didn't get my choice. And they thought I was coming from somewhere else. So we had a run. And before that, they said, um, by the way, you're the cook tonight. You got to cook because nobody else could cook. I'm like, all right, let's go get on the rig and we'll go. We get on the rig. We're just about ready to get out to go to uh, the supermarket. We get a run. And it's around the corner from the firehouse in a place we called Little Mexico, 103rd Street, uh, Lexington Park. And I got the roof. I go up to the roof and there's a guy out the window above the fire. And I get on the radio. I say there's a guy standing outside the roof, outside the window, holding on to the window frame, standing outside. And I said, I'm going to set up a roof rope. And they go, OK. The thing was that he was off on an angle. So they had to set up a, a weird one where it was an angle. And one of the guys uh, from 26 truck who came up, uh, John McGann lowered me and big Billy Donahue sat down on the ground um, with his uh, belt on and ran the rope through there. So we went down, I went down, the guy jumped at me, I caught him. Anyway, I won, uh, I won a medal. I won the Gordon Bennett, which is the highest award in the FDLY for that roof rope rescue. And it was two days before Christmas. It was pretty wild. But the bad part is that the father, whose apartment it was, his two kids died. Okay. And uh, I was in the back of the ambulance. And I'm sitting there and I'm shaking. My wife is pregnant with my first kid at the time. Okay. And I'm shaking. It's 1991. And my hands are going like this. And I see this father and the wife, his wife come out. And the dad is burnt. I mean, his cheeks are burnt. His eyebrows are missing. His hands are burnt. He made a push for his kids that would make any fireman proud. And I look at the medic sitting in the ambulance. And I said, uh, I'm getting out. Get him in here. And he goes, no, no, no. Firemen take precedent. I go, no way. Get him in here. Get him in here. And I go and I sit on the car, but I'm still shaking. You know, adrenaline, that post-adrenaline thing. 
And they take off with the father who was ended up being admitted to the burn center. I mean, it was horrible. And um, the next bus takes me to the hospital and the medic looks at me and he says, uh, I'm going to put a needle in the back of your hand for blood gases. I don't know if anybody else has had this done, but the needle's about, you know, 15 feet long. And the guy's like, relax. And I look at him and I'm like, I am relaxed. And I didn't say it that nice that time myself. I said, I am relaxed. He goes, we'll do this later. So I go to the hospital and I'll never forget the medic came back and found me and said, I just want you to know that was the most humane thing I have ever seen done. Thank you. And that meant more to me than anything. So I get promoted and I go to um, a place called, uh, I go into the maxi water unit, um, engine 207, because I'm being punished. Because I got in trouble when I made my rescue. When I showed up, my mustache was too long. It made U-turns on my face and I was embarrassment to the fire department. So I got sent because I got told to shave once before at the first bombing of the World Trade Center because my mustache used to come in bright red. And I did. Nobody else was ordered to shave. So I said, oh, I'm going to grow it back the way I like it. So I ended up in a place that was, you know, they ran around a lot because they went to every multiple alarm in a city in New York. But they didn't get that much fire duty. So I was there for a while. But I ended up then getting moved right down the block to a tower ladder, 119. And I ended up, it's still funny, I ended up at an 18th alarm. It's one of the biggest fires in New York City history at the Hotel St. George. And uh, I was there and I saw my guys from Harlem at a fire in Brooklyn. It was like, never happened. It, would, it, it will never happen again. So that was a pretty interesting uh, fire I was at. Uh, 18 alarms. Um, there was, you would go into the Pineapple Street buildings. Uh, we were in a 95 foot tower ladder at the hotel that was on a renovation, but um, there was fire on every floor. Just pick a floor you want to go to, any floor you want to go to. And um, so that was, I ended up getting transferred from Brooklyn back up to where I wanted to go in Harlem. And I ended up UFO and told further orders in 28 truck, the Harlem Hilton, a great firehouse. And I thought I might get the spot there, but that didn't happen. So I ended up in a place called uh, 42 truck, La Casa de Elefante, the elephant house. Because uh, their firemen back in the heyday were all huge guys, huge guys. And uh, they used to just, they didn't bring, they didn't, the irons, they didn't need them. They just... Uh, hip-butted doors, and the doors would blow off the hinges. That's how big they were. So I was there from um, 96 to uh, 2000. July 1st of um, 2000, I got promoted to captain, and I was covering around, uh, bouncing in different parts. of. I ended up in the 15th Division, and I was what we call an R group. An R group is a relief group. And you cover specific firehouses. And I had a great R group, the 25R group in Brooklyn for captains. It was engine 290, engine 234, ladder uh, 113, ladder 132, and ladder 175. And it was a great R group. Um, and I bounced around there. And then 9-11 happened. And I ended up uh, being assigned to ladder 123. That's a, man, that's a hell of a journey up to that point. And, you know, I think... Uh one thing that you talked about before kind of resonated with me the the rescues that you had firstly that's a sum of all your training so i mean you know 
so many other versions of that night, that man would have perished as well. But because of, you know, that, and then also having the out-of-box thinking that your uh, officer had in that one time going to the neighboring apartment reminds me of my captain. We had this huge pallet fire and all the rest of the department kind of went moth to the flame, and rightly so. But I'll never forget Terry kind of taking a step back, looking at the map of the area, finding like a huge retention pond that actually you could drive the engine down, cut the chain, went down that way, ended up rescuing an entire crew that was being burned up. Um, and so, yeah, get, I mean, that just really highlights the leadership that you're talking about. But another thing that I found, because in my career, I've had a lot of people not make it, especially from cardiac arrest. If you go in cardiac arrest and I'm your fire medic, you're fucked. There's no other way of putting it because I'm the reaper when it comes to that. Um, and so you, your knowledge or your, your understanding that you've trained so hard for what you do. I think there's a mental health element as well. When we lose people and we lose people all the time, if you know in your heart of hearts that you hadn't trained, that is going to haunt you. But if you know in your heart of hearts that you did everything you could to prepare for that day, then you can kind of, kind of at least have some peace and understanding that it was in God's hands or whatever, whatever deity or universe you believe in. But yeah, as they say, you know, let no man's uh, ghost. Let no man's ghost come back and say my training let me down. Thank you. I butchered it. I appreciate you pulling me out of that hole. <laughs> no problem. No problem. And very honestly, I agree with that wholeheartedly because if you train and you keep training and you train all the time and we train on ropes all the time. So I knew what I was going to do on that rope. I knew what was happening on that rope. Uh, was I scared? Absolutely. I was scared. If people are not scared in the fire service, when things like this are going on, they're a fool. Okay. But again, the training, the training, the training, the training, it pays immeasurable dividends. Okay. And if you're not training your people to succeed, there's something wrong with you. If it's more important that your accounting firm uh, during tax season, do we cheat them and how? is doing good, then the men and women who work for you, work under you, there is something wrong. There is something wrong. You have to understand that this is vital to what we do. Well, the other thing that you said about getting basically in trouble for having a mustache that was out of, you know, the standards whilst making a rescue. I mean, that's another thing. And I've heard you talking about the fire service is not a business. And I agree completely. You know, there's, there's elements of the customer service thing that are good. Yeah. And we talked about it, the kindness and compassion. But there's a certain line where, okay, you know, now you're painting someone's house and doing, okay, no, we're, we're here to respond to emergencies. But I see that as well. Like, you know, my two departments ago, we used to joke, you know, like if, you could you could make heroic rescues and then die in the process and then be written up posthumously for not wearing a traffic vest. You know what I mean? So you know where do we draw that line as well? Where where that admin element completely loses sight of the fact that ultimately we are there to to save lives. And if you do it in a t-shirt because you just woke up and that's what you've got, then that should be the focus. Not and Danny Dwyer is a perfect example from from uh, Georgia. You know, he goes mm -hmm. in, he makes a grab and then comes out and then gets, you know, disciplined. Yeah, you're missing the sight completely of what it was there. He had an opportunity. He went for it. You know, it was life first, you know, Recio, rescue first. And very honestly, again, that's a chief who hasn't walked the walk. 
He hasn't been there when someone's life has been in. He has not been that person who has made a push to make a grab to get someone whose life is important. And the training pays dividends. I mean, I've been involved in a couple of rescues. Uh, that was the roof rope was only one. Another one was with a baby in a crib when I went in a window up in Harlem and I looked at the crib, I picked up this thing and I said, oh, that's a doll. I put it down and I, you know, the face pieces back in the day were not very good. Picked it up again. I said, holy Christmas, this is a kid. I grabbed this kid and I went out. I got this kid. And we saved three brothers at that fire and uh, it was amazing. And another one, there was a kitchen fire and it was uh, in the Hasidic Jewish community and the guys were all upstairs, but the smoke detector didn't work. And we go up the stairs and we're pulling these people out of their beds and getting them down the stairs. And we saved uh, three people, at that, four people at that fire. They were amazing. Guys did a phenomenal job. So, again, it's your training. I mean, one of my guys went to the rear and went in the rear bedroom. He said, I'm going in the rear. We communicate. Okay, we'll take the ones off the stairs. And we went upstairs and we went off the stairs. And somebody went to the front rooms and everybody knew where they were going to check the different bedrooms because there were reports that people were in there. The parents were down on the first were on the first floor where the master suite was and the kitchen and the kitchen caught on fire. But everything's going right upstairs and the kids are all in bed. They're unconscious, you know. So, I mean, guys, it's that that you can't say it enough uh, that the training pays its dividends. Absolutely. Well, you talked about the rescue in the first World Trade bombing. So I'd love to just kind of hear, you know, what that entire call was like through your eyes then and then kind of transition to obviously the, the horrific second attack that we had in, in uh, 2001. Well, the f first one was uh, I was driving. It was the first Friday of Lent. Um, we went out to get lunch. Again, I was cooking. I was making stuffed flounder. Uh, this was 1993. It was going to be uh, $10 a man, a lot of money back then for lunch, but it was flounder stuffed with crab and shrimp. And we were getting ready to uh, cook. We got a call to a church up on uh, 120th Street for carbon monoxide leak. And we're at the, the, the church up there and you can hear the, the, um, the alarm come in for the World Trade Center because we were still in Manhattan and I was driving and they said, any box, any company that is not needed, the battalion is to release them immediately. So we were the second do ladder company at this box up in Harlem and the battalion released us. And uh, we get on the air and we say, we're, we're back in service with 10, eight and available. And they go 10, four, we start going back to the firehouse. We get back towards the firehouse, and um, the uh, we're just about ready to back in the firehouse, and we get a run to the World Trade Center from 102nd Street in Harlem. So that's like you know going from California to Texas. That's what I equate it to. That's how far away it is for us in the terms of responses. And we go down there. And we get down there and um, I'm driving. So I drop them off. I go park the rig and I shut the rig down because, you know, we're going to be there for hours. You can see it. And I go find trying to find out where they are because they went in. They were assigned to um, go check elevators. So what happened in the first bombing is we had to go up to the 50th floor was where the elevator machinery rooms were. 
and the elevator lobby for the for the low rise bank of elevators that went from one to 48 was on the 48th floor. So we start up there. Captain is up on the 50th floor with the elevator mechanics and our senior man, Jim Tierney. Jimmy Tierney was um, used to smoke three packs of Luckies, a tour. Okay. And he always had the OV, the outside vent, and he didn't ride backwards. So we used to call the seat across from him, the cancer seat, because he, he would, on runs, he would smoke two or three cigarettes on one run. Okay. Um, and um, that did catch up with him in the end. But Tierney was there, um, Johnny Cologne, Skip Panettiere, uh, Billy Duffy, myself, and Jack Culkin was the captain. And we walked up 50 floors. Then we walked down to the 48th floor. And the elevators, they would release the brakes on the elevators. And the counterweights were always a little heavier than the elevators. So they would come up. And we would open up the elevators. And sometimes they'd be empty. Sometimes there'd be a couple of people. Oh, thank God. We've been in there for three hours or whatever else. We get them all done. We got one elevator left to go. And the elevator starts coming up. We open up the elevator. And there are 10 bodies on the floor. And they look like they're dead. They're covered in soot. They are blackened. The elevator door was blown off, as I said, in the basement level. And they were in a chimney. And they were just, they were there. We hear somebody moan. Give a mayday, mayday, mayday. We got these people on the floor. We said, we got multiple victims on the 48th floor. We need help. Well, the next thing you know, because there was a staging area on the, the 50th or the 51st floor. Um, I see these guys, Jerry Tracy, Chief DiBernardo. They were all coming down to help us. And we're getting all these people out. And there were a couple of them that were in critical condition. They were so far exposed to this stuff. We got them all out. They all survived. But there was a husband and wife team that had said goodbye to each other. Okay. And they told us that afterwards. So we ended up being on the news that night. Um, there's a, an iconic um, interview of us being on the news that night from the World Trade Center. My parents saw me in Florida on World News tonight. The next day, I got to go in and my chief says, I want you to put all your medals on. And I want you to go in there. So I went in there. And again, my mustache was red. It was a little long. So I was told to shave then. So I did shave. Okay. Then nobody else was ordered to shave. So I said, hell with it. I'm going to grow it back. And that's when I got in trouble the second time. But that was an amazing. I mean, it was amazing. Uh, seeing those people, they all survived. And getting everybody out of there and going that far. And that was the first time. And we did good. And then the second time uh, I was working in on September 11th, I was working uh, at the fire academy because I had been at a party the day before. And that was my normal tour the day before. So I did a mutual. I flipped it. I said, I'm going to go that day to the fire academy for this day. So they had to get somebody to fill my spot, which they did. So on the 10th, I was at a party for my old firehouse where I was a lieutenant, uh, 73 and 42, was the rededication of the firehouse, rededication of the hole in the wall, as we called it. And 11 people who were at that party did not see sunset the next day, including the chief of the department, Pete Gancy, Bill Feehan, uh, Father Judge, Brian Ahern, Joe Marchbanks, and I can go on and on and on. But there were 11 guys who were at that party that did not see 
the uh, end of the next day. So I got there, and um, <clears throat> guy comes up to me as we're down there, and he has an American flag. And I said, what are you doing with that flag? And he goes, I don't know. It was on the ground. I picked it up. I said, we got to get that up. We got to get that up. So I look at guys. Anybody got any rope? And the guys were like shell-shocked. And nobody moved. And I said, all right. I went and got a ladder myself as a captain, which is unheard of. And I threw the ladder up. And I said, anybody got a piece of line? And one of the guys broke out a piece of line out of his pocket. It had probably been there since probie school. It was dried. It was crinkled. I got a knife out. I'm trying to cut it. And I put a flag up on a light pole. Um, and uh, from what I understand, it was the first flag raised to ground zero. I don't know that to be fact. I think it might be, but I'm not 100% sure. But I put this flag up. That a photographer, uh, Andrew Savulich, took a picture of it. And it ended up in the New York Daily News. It ended up on the cover of U.S. News of World Report. It ended up on the cover of Reader's Digest. And uh, it ended up on the cover of WNYF with New York firefighters. And the next day, my father saw it down in Florida. And I get a call uh, two days later. And my father, being a military veteran, is like, hey, asshole, the flag's backwards. And I'm like, but it's not, Pop. Flag's pointing north. Okay photographer had to come around to the other side to get the picture of the ladder and he came around the other side and he said oh okay well then the photographer's an asshole well <laughs> not really but at least i was out of out of control you know? but the flag was where we could put it up as best we could get it to pointing north so but the paradigms the perceptions and all that but it just you know um one of the guys who was at that party pete beerfield was at the medical office and had made a rescue a couple of nights earlier and was there because he hurt his back getting this person out of a window in a project. And he didn't have to go there and he went there and he left a note in a locker at the 10 house. And he said, my name's Pete Beerfield. Uh, tell my wife, I love her. Tell my family, I'm sorry, but I got to do what I got to do. And he went, and Pete's dad at his funeral said he got his son back in 26 pieces. Ray Murphy, who was at the party working the next day, uh, Ray Murphy survived the first collapse. They found a wounded fireman, sent a couple of his guys back, and he and another guy walked to the next building and were killed in the collapse. So there were things that go through your head. We didn't even know Pete Beerfield was missing till three days later. Uh, I was now a captain, but one of my chauffeurs from um, 42 Truck, Sean McNamee, found me and said, you know, Pete's missing. I'm like, what? How did he get here? Because we think he got here from the, uh, from the medical office. We don't know. But his family hasn't seen him. Nobody can see, nobody's found him. Three days. It's amazing. You know, uh, the company that I was, uh, had been um, working in a lot of 132, um, 132 disappeared. Six men, all their equipment. They never found anything. They never found a halligan. They never found a hook. Never found a helmet. They never found anybody's remains. They found nothing. All six of them gone from the face of the earth. 
So just uh, amazing. And I still talk 20 years later. I talk to brothers who were there, sisters who were there. I talk to people who were there. And you still learn stuff you didn't know from that day. Um, I sat down with Salk a while ago and we were talking about it. And still to this day, I'm learning more and more. You know, just amazing. Well, I've had so many kind of different perspectives on here. I had Denise Olson who lost uh, her husband. Um, I had uh, the Norday brothers that made the 9-11 documentary who were there with Father Judge. Um, you know, and it's so important to hear all these different perspectives. So I, so I thank you because I'm sure these, you know, this movie's running around your mind again. The, the part that stays with us though is the mental health impact and obviously the cancer impact. So, you know, what have you seen in the 20 years after? Because people romanticize about 912 and I think they're absolutely right. But in the same breath, you know, th there's no support financially for a lot of these cancer victims and their, their families. So it's kind of a you know, lip service sometimes. So what has been the ripple effect of that on the men and women of FDNY, PD, Port Authority, et cetera? Well, very honestly, I think, you know, people do romanticize 9-12 that we responded to every run we went on and, you know, still the greatest job in the world. But there are a lot of people dead from cancers and there are a lot of people still dying from cancers and um, it has to be funded. These people have to get what they deserve. It's only right. And, you know, our politicians, there is a lot of lip service in politics. No ifs, ands, or buts. But we have to make sure that these people are taken care of um, all the time. All of the people who were there, all of the people who were exposed get taken care of. I mean, what's going on? Um, you, you've got to just make sure that you talk to your politicians and understand that they are supporting the men and women who are down there, the brothers and sisters. I got friends from all over the country who were there. Uh, Bobby Halton was there. Um, my buddy Chris from Sacramento was there with the task force. Uh, they were, there were people from all over the country there. You got to support the men and women who were there. Um, but the other thing that I'm very, very, how do I put this properly? Um, aware of is the people out there who are scamming. The men and women who say they were there and were never there. And they're trying to take money and they're trying to take benefits from other people who deserve. It, okay. People have to be, you have to go and do your due diligence to make sure you find out that this person was there. I have seen people giving speeches on about 9-11 who were never there, who were never there. Um, and I have given speeches on 9-11. Uh, last year, I was truly honored on 9-11. Uh, it was a couple of days before, but um, Goodfellow Airbase asked me to come down and talk to the military fire service recruits at Goodfellow Air Base in San Angelo, Texas, about 9-11. Uh, and I went down there and I talked to them. And very honestly, um, I have talked to people. I have been out to uh, Sacramento and done a stair climb. I have been to 
Missouri and done a stair climb and talked to people on 9-11. If I do anything, I will never take a dime. I will make sure that a donation is made to a charity for the widows and orphans or to the cancer or whatever else, to something for that. Now, the military, I wouldn't even ask for a charity donation because I was so proud to be down there at Goodfellow Air Base. Um, but I was down there and talked to, you know, it's the Marine Corps, the Navy, the Army, the Air Corps, and the Coast Guard. And it's also the Supply Corps, which is where they house all of their equipment. So those six parts of the government, that's where all their firefighters are trained. Um, the, the fire service in the military is in great hands. And they're great young men and women. And I was blessed to be down there. And it recharged my soul. So um, I think the cancer, we got to be aware of the cancer and take care of our brothers and sisters. But the other thing with that is for anybody in the fire service, not just 9-11, Miami-Dade, I think 60-something percent of their retirees have some kind of cancer. Okay, brothers and sisters, you got to go out and take care of yourself. You got to go out and have the tests. I got that Irish mayonnaise skin, and I know our video is not coming out, but I, I like to call it pink and peel. Okay, I am as white as white, milk toast. Okay, listen, you got to go see the dermatologist. You got to go see the doctors. You got to follow up on something. You got to have a colonoscopy. Okay, listen, colonoscopies, they're no fun. Okay, and I will admit that I've had more than my share. But I've had them, okay? you got to go out and take care of yourself. And very honestly, a colonoscopy is nothing, okay? Because all it is is the prep, and you got to go to the bathroom a lot. But the actual procedure is a piece of cake, okay? You don't even remember it. I was in the middle of talking to the doctor who married one of my captain's nieces. That's how small a world this is. And we were talking, and I said, okay, when are we going to do this? He's like, Mike, you're done. What? I was in mid-sentence and I fell asleep? Yeah. Yeah, you're <laughs> fine. Okay. It was unbelievable. Unbelievable. But we got to take care of ourselves. You know, if something doesn't feel right, it's not right. Go take care of yourself. Well, I think of the understanding as well that the job is set up to kill you. You know, you look at what we're exposed to. You look at the damage sleep deprivation does. You look at you oh. know some first use in the food that's available. Like we, you know... We are swimming upstream when it comes to our health in the fire service. So you have to be more proactive than the accountant or the butcher because, you know, they get to go to bed at night. They get access to local supermarkets. They can leave when they want and, and we can't, you know, and, and we're exposed right. to so much and our immune system is just absolutely battered over a career. So yeah, I mean, I think there's, there's so much work when you're on the job and then especially when you transition out or retire. Really, now you're on, you know, you're a full time uh, health professional trying to undo all the damage that, that happened to you while you were serving. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's so important that you are your own advocate with your doctors, with your mental health, with your. Go talk to people. Okay. Go find people. Um, and then if you're re- out of the job, like I am, as I said, I'm retiring. I taught my last class in the city the other day. Um, and my wife is retiring. We're going to figure out, we're going to travel a lot, but we're also going to figure out some volunteering stuff, what we're going to do, how we're going to give back. Okay. 
And there's nothing better than being in that position to give back. Every Christmas, my wife and I adopt a military family. And um, somebody here locally who, uh, you know, because of the rents and everything, it's very difficult. We adopt a military family. And we go out and we buy stuff. Now, the last couple of years, because of the pandemic, we haven't been able to buy stuff. We have to buy gift cards. So they're like, buy gift cards for the kids and all that. And then I, being me, go to Home Depot and said, well, I got to buy something for the dad. You know, kids can have all these kids, but I got to buy something for the dad, the military guy, to be able to go to Home Depot and get a tool to feel like, you know, whatever. So, again, um, give back. Find some way. It, 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 to me, it heals my soul. It helps me so much giving back. Well, I think that's a real key when it comes to transition as well. Like I, over and over and over again in, in the first responder professions and the military professions that have come on this show, the transition story, there's this so often there's a, there's a struggle element to it. And some people get to a very, very dark place. And you look at all the things that we've discussed as far as the, the, the beautiful part, the fire service, the camaraderie, the sense of purpose, you know, but then you have, especially in the generation like between yours and mine pretty much where we were raised on this kind of false facade of what masculinity is and i don't mean that in a toxic masculinity way. i mean in literally it was a facade the kind of you know john wayne bullshit that was fed to everyone and then so you get this two-dimensional version where that kindness and compassion that took us into the job that we talked about making sure you maintain with the people we serve, we sometimes forget to show it to ourselves. So then when you transition out, you get a lot of these men and women that, that are lost emotionally and mentally lost. And one of the most, I think, empowering things is to understand that when you transition out, if you can find a new purpose, whether it's volunteerism, whether it's, you know, one of my friends makes radio straps that are completely decontaminatable. So, you know, re removal, okay, whatever it is, that you are still making the world a better place. Just like you said, I think that's one of the most important things to look for when you make that transition from our profession to, you know, whatever comes next. Absolutely. I agree wholeheartedly. Uh, I stayed in the teaching, um, teaching, impacting the fire service, being a part of it in a, an outside way. But uh, it's so important. And having something to do, um, you got to have a hobby. You got to have, and you got to have family. You got to have, you know, people, friends. You know, if you don't have anything to go to, uh, go get yourself a dog. You need something. You know, take a dog out for a walk, whatever. It's so important that we spend time for us. And that's part of the whole thing with the fire service is transitioning out. But understanding that it's okay to transition out. It's okay to do other things. Absolutely. Well, I want to touch on one quick point before we go to some closing questions because I come from a very, you know, I, I shout from the rooftops about the strength and conditioning side and the importance of fitness in the fire service. And that can be from you're in a station that, you know, runs alarms up the world trade every day before, you know, the, the horrendous tragedy, or you're not, and you have to work more on the gym side. But you talked about climbing 50 floors in the first World Trade Center incident. Um, what is, and then obviously that, that parallels with longevity and health in the fire service too. So what is your perspective of, of the fitness training and the nutrition element for performance and longevity in our profession? I think it's vitally important. Vitally important. Now, the first World Trade Center, we were in three-quarter boots. Most of us ended up taking our boots off 
because they were so loose. They were, you know, the old rubber boots and tying them around our necks and walking up the floors. Uh, Jim Tierney, the guy I talked about who used to smoke, made it up to 50 floors. He said that he left a piece of equipment on every odd floor and a hunk of Harlem spitting out on every even floor. Uh, but he made it up. It took him two hours to get up there. Okay. But you have to be in condition to do this. Now, the other thing is, very honestly, um, the, you have to have the right equipment to do this. Um, doing this in bunker pants right now would be very, 50 floors in bunker pants would be very hard. You have to know how you are going to do this. You have to have the right stuff to do this. But the conditioning and the nutrition, you have to have the food in you to do this. You have to be able to do this. And you also have to be very, very careful. Now, I know a lot of guys are um, into working out and all the other stuff, but some of them are using uh, these supplements and things like that. You have to be hydrated at all times. You have to have your waters. You have to make sure that your body is fit to do this. You can't be a perfect um, sculpture. You can't be a beautiful Adonis and not be fit to fight fires. I used to work with a guy who was a triathlete and we used to call him porcelain because every fire he went to, he got hurt. Okay. Something hurt. I hurt my shoulder. I hurt my, by the way, do you have an application for that triathlon? I'm going to run a triathlon, but I, I'm not physically fit enough to pull ceilings. Okay. It is a balance. It is a work balance between both of those things. Okay. Fitness, nutrition, and the right muscle groups to be doing what we're doing, using your shoulders, using your arms to be able to hit, to be able to use a, a halligan, to be able to use an axe to do the stuff we need to do. And if you need help with it, ask your senior person, get some training and do some stuff that'll make you better at those tasks. The tasks that you are required to do in your department, be good at them. No, that's so good to hear. And I think it's, you know, it's, it's mirrors what so many people on here have said. And there's, there's some great training modalities that do mirror what we do. But as you were saying, you know, if you've got a 50 story building next to you, then there's no better way to prepare for that than stairs, doing stairs. If you don't get called to it all the time. But then conversely, if you're in a place that's basically, you know, single story, um, single family homes, then yeah, maybe your, your training will look a little different. Now you yep. talked about taking the, the, uh, three quarter length boots off. I just wanted to throw this at you. I have again a very unusual lens because I'm from the UK originally. I've worked in all these different fire departments out west. Our helmets were a lot smaller. Um, I've come over here, you know, that I've had the, the, the large helmets. I've seen the, the draw towards the leather helmets, but then you look in the carcinogen element and leather is a big sponge. But one thing that really turns my stomach is this kind of like tearing apart of, for example, the European helmets. Now, I'm a huge fan of innovation. Whatever can increase my chance of making a rescue, I mm -hmm. think is, is, is important for us to pull in. We'll be innovative with, you know, ticks and those kind of things. But when it comes to the helmets, for example, it kind of, to me, is, is the, the example of how we looked at mental health for the longest time, that like we hang on to them. I think it's it's an amazing part of our history, but to me, it would be like the Navy SEALs still wearing the tin helmets from World War One. So how do we m separate tradition, which I think is is courage and compassion and you know camaraderie, 
but get away from latching onto clothing and tools when it comes to tradition and, and get our men and women to maybe be a little more progressive with what we're wearing and carrying? Uh, I think that's um, through, again, training. And, you know, uh, we still have departments out there uh, getting pike-headed axes, okay? A one-dimensional tool. Uh, why? Well, because we've always done this. Uh, we still have departments that have uh, ladders on the outside of their pumpers, and they have a 24 and a 16, and the roof ladders on the outside. Well, if I'm stuck on a second floor, I want the 24 being there, okay? Why isn't the 24 on the outside? Because the apparatus manufacturer thought it looked better this way, and they put it on there? Well, that's bullshit, okay? Put the, the ladders on there to wait a little fit you. We have to get the European helmets in here and get testing done, okay? See how they feel, see how they work, see how they're done. Uh, I, I am a traditionalist. I love the old helmets. I like them. I've used them a lot. Um, and they've gotten beat up. I haven't had stuff go down my neck as much. And again, we were wearing the old uh, coats, the three-quarter, the, the boots and the three-quarter coats, okay? And stuff was going down. You were pulling ceilings and embers were going down your neck. And that's one of the things that helped you. Um, it depends on how the helmets work. I haven't seen them in our area be tested yet. And they have to be. They have to be. And everything else. Listen, thermal imaging cameras have come so far with the testing and everything else. Um, it's amazing. Now you have the little ones, uh, the face pieces are now going to be heads up displays. We're going to be like a, uh, a fighter pilot pretty soon in our uh, SCBA. But we also have to remember that technology fails and i can't show you to you because we're on audio but one of my favorite pictures that i use in a lot of my powerpoint presentations is me at laguardia airport in new york city with the paper towel dispenser there was a pile of paper towels on the floor i was about four feet high and it, i can't get paper towel to come out of that thing anytime i needed to I'm always like, my hand is running under there and I'm moving it around and everything. Well, this time, whatever happened, technology failed and there was four feet, the entire roll of paper was sitting on the floor of the bathroom. Okay, technology fails. You have to know your basics to save yourself and save your crew. Okay, you have to know where you're going, whatever the technology is, whatever we're doing, you still have to be able to do your job without it. I couldn't agree more. I can remember a, a specific tick training that we did and I kind of got pulled in to the screen and could see everywhere I was going. And then the battery failed and I realized I didn't know where the wall was. And it was a training situation, which is great. But yeah, to, and then after that, I'm like, okay, tick is a great tool, but I'm still never going to leave the wall just in case it, it does, you know, far yep. out on me. And then I've seen as well in Anaheim, great great training it was a winter's day we made entry to you know a pretty hot room and the thing spazzed out because it couldn't take that temperature change so again yep brilliant all right well i want to transition some closing questions so i can let you go i've been chatting for over two hours so i really appreciate your uh, your generosity no today the first one i love to ask is there a book or are there books that you love to recommend it can be related to our discussion today or completely unrelated uh yes um, I love military history, so um, I have a list of books that I send out to people when they ask, but um, Seven Roads to Hell, A Screaming Eagle's Diary of Bastogne, 
the simple sounds of freedom. Okay, the only person who fought in the Second World War for the Americans and the Russians. And the story is too, too, almost scientific to not be true. You couldn't make a movie out of it. Um, and I like anything. I loved Spearhead. Okay. Um, about the, by Adam Makos, about the tank battles. Um, anything. I love every military history book. I have hundreds of them. The other one that I love personally is Crucial Conversations. Okay. About talking to people and doing it right. Uh, being able to communicate with people. Those are four that I would highly recommend. Brilliant. Well, you mentioned not being able to make that one into a movie. What about movies? Is there any movies and or documentaries that you love? Um, I like music, so I watch a lot of documentaries about music and stuff like that. I mean, Band of Brothers, The Pacific. I've read both of those, uh, the books, you know, With the Old Breed, my uh, Helmet for My Pillow. Um, they were great books. Uh, and again, the Band of Brothers book was phenomenal. It's in my library. I love it. Uh, those are phenomenal uh, things. Um, there was also a series on Netflix called Medal of Honor that I loved, that I loved. Speaking of Band of Brothers, that's the example I use when we're talking about that facade of masculinity. When you have a dramatization, I'm actually getting hopefully the actor that portrayed the, the medic in that show. Oh, and I had, I had, uh, Ca um, Captain Dale Dye, who was actually, he worked with stunt people too, and I do stunts on the side. So I worked with him and he came on the show a while ago. But there is no better example of that kindness and compassion and that impact of war than that show. Because the beginning and the end of every episode, you have these true heroes of Easy Company, 60 plus years later, still in tears trying to recall what they went through. So this whole, you know, boys don't cry, rub some dirt in it bullshit. If you want to kind of reprogram that, watch the Banner Brothers and you'll see what a real hero looks and like. Very honestly, listen, I cry like a schoolgirl. If you haven't seen, um, look at the speech I gave when I got the Lifetime Achievement Award at FDIC when I talked about my wife. And my daughter still talks about her dad blubbering up on a stage talking about her mom. <laughs> and um, I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. Um, I'm getting emotional just thinking about it. I mean, my wife has been my support forever and my rock. So her standing behind me and letting me, um, almost like that song, The Wind Beneath My Wings, that Bette Midler, letting me fly and she'd be taking care of everything at home, it, it meant the world to me. I mean, I, I'll cry at the drop of a hat. Okay, because I'm an Irishman. I wear my I wear my heart on my sleeve. You know what I'm thinking. I guarantee it. You know what I'm thinking in 30 seconds. Well, I think that's what empathy is. That's why you become a firefighter. It's because you don't want oh. people to suffer and you don't want people to hurt. You don't want people to die. And you want to make it better. Exactly. So then to, to deny the very emotions that took you to the uniform is insanity. Yep. And then the other one, just because we were talking about it as you brought it up, there's a book called Flyboys. It talks about um, Bush Sr., the president, and about how uh, at this place they were bombing Iwo Jima, but they were being Chiajima was the communication system, and how all the pilots 
were um, swept in by the currents to the island and ended up being cannibalized, except for Bush Sr. And Bush Sr. was swept out. The winds were blowing a different direction on that day. Fate, unbelievable. And he got picked up by a submarine. But 60 years later, he's on that island with one of the Japanese guards in this book. And it, it's what we talked about with Vanda Brothers. And he asks the guard, do you remember seeing my plane go down? Did you see any of the other guys in the plane? Because he laid the plane in a certain way so they could get out. And nobody, they don't think anybody got out. But he was asking this Japanese guard 60 years later, did you see any other parachutes? And just amazing what these men went through. Absolutely, which kind of you know, circles right around to, to your early life with your dad. Yep, yep, absolutely. So the next question, is there a person or are there any people that you would recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military, and associated professions of the world? Whew. Well, I think you've had a lot of the guys I like. Um, you've had John Walters, correct? Yes, sir. Yeah, I actually was talking to him the other day. Yeah, so he was the other person that kind of connected me with you. And Mike Galliano, um, Dave Gallagher from, um, he's down in Florida now, but he was in Ohio, Uber Heights, Ohio. He's a great one. How about uh, Mike Champo, Lieutenant Champo? You know, it's funny. He has come because I, I go to the Orlando Fire Conference every year and okay. I'm just... I procrastinate by minutes and always miss his his class. So I've never really spoken to him, but but I've been at the conference doing a class right next to his class. But yeah, he's someone I need to get on as well. And another one who would be very interesting is my friend Paul Hagland. Paul Hagland was the captain of Rescue 4, and his brother Danny and I grew up together. We were a couple of months apart in age. And Danny was a fireman in Rescue 4. Paul was the captain. And Danny has since passed of 9-11 cancer. And Paul's got a great history in the FDNY, a great history in the FDNY. And he would be an excellent uh, person to talk to. Well, thank you. Yeah, I think that would be, I mean, all three of them sound amazing. But yeah, having having someone who was a firefighter who's also lost someone post 9-11, I think that would be a very important story to tell. Absolutely. And Danny was a great, great guy and, you know, just horrible horrible i'm so sorry to hear that and that's this again why we need to keep talking about it because seeing yep. that fight for the the financial side a few years ago just nauseated mm -hmm. me oh yeah all right well then the last question before we make sure people know where to find you and you know any places to reach out to you for classes or not depending on you know, what you're going to be doing from now on um uh what do you do to decompress you talked about fishing for peace and quiet is there anything else um I like, very honestly, um, I like sitting in my uh, easy chair and reading a book. Um, I like um, just relaxing. I do play probably a little too much. I play, I like to play word games to uh, test my brain on my phone. So I sometimes do spend a little too much time playing word games, but I love the English language. Uh, I love words and I love reading. Uh, my wife did give me a an e-reader because I travel. And she goes, instead of carrying three books with you, you can bring this and read them. So I do like that for traveling. I, I do like to hold a book in my hand and I've got books everywhere. But uh, I love reading and I like to go back to reread stuff. I just, 
reread uh, Cannery Row, and I loved it. I reread To Kill a Mockingbird probably for the 15th time, uh, and I still love every part of it. Uh, I am now um, rereading Last of the Mohicans, and I just love to read. So um, that's part of what I do to decompress, to sit down. Uh, I also love going to live music shows. My wife's brother and I, he's one of my dear, dear friends. He's my brother-in-law. But we love to go to shows. And we, uh, p- before the pandemic, uh, we were going to probably two to three shows a month. Uh, he has retired. Uh, he worked for the Electricians Union in New York City. So uh, we're starting to get back into it. Uh, we're going uh, up to Daryl's house to see um, uh, James McMurtry, who we both love. Uh, I don't know if you've read Lonesome Dove by Larry McMurtry. No. But Larry, no. Larry is his father. Well, Lonesome Dove is an amazing book. An amazing book. Um, and um, so we're going up to see uh, James McMurtry. I love to go to any kind of live music show. Uh, little places in town that have somebody there. I think musicians are just some of the bravest people in the world. Go out in front of an audience and play, to me, takes courage and talent that I don't have. And the other thing that I'm amazed at is the musician brain, which is different than my brain, where some of these guys that I see are playing the guitar, the harmonica, and singing. I mean, I couldn't do one of those things, and they're doing three at the same time. It just amazes me how talented they are. Now, it is incredible because I'm, I'm that guy that doesn't remember any of the words for any song. So if I was a songwriter, I wouldn't even better remember my own songs. So, <laughs> all right. Well, then for people listening, you know, where are the best places online to learn more about you to try and get you and Mike to, you know, their department and, and anywhere else in cyberspace that you think they should be looking? Um, they can uh, hit me up on Facebook. I'm on Mike Dugan at Facebook. Uh, also, if you ask me to be your friend on Facebook, I will send you to my public profile page, uh, Captain Dugan. And also my uh, website is captaindugan.com. And uh, my email is really simple because I'm old school. It's Dugan, my last name, D-U-G-A-N, fire, F-I-R-E, at AOL.com. I still have AOL, yes, because I've had it forever. And I don't like change. I've had Hotmail for a long time. I get ridiculed for that too. So there we go. (laughs) There we go. Same thing. Galliano and I are the only two guys I know with uh, AOL email addresses still. Yeah. Well, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Well, Mike, I want to say thank you so much. It's been such an amazing conversation. We've been all over the place. And before we started recording, that was kind of the thing. You know, I told you it was going to be a, a chronological timeline. Yep. And, and here we are now, two and almost two and a half hours later. So I just want to thank you so much for being so generous with your time and telling your story today. No problem. Thank you. It was a pleasure.